Hello and welcome to a Pair of Dice Lost podcasting channel. My name is Brendan and I'll be your spooky teller for the evening. On this very special episode, in time for the holidays, we listen to four stories from around the world. The first, a fable of the Slogers. The second, a tale of Daring Do from the Phoenix Guard. Next is a bootstrapping good time. And finally, a tale from New Vespia itself so we can know what the Fellowship fights to stop. This is Fellowship, Fall of the House of Upperton, Story time. This story is dedicated to my late father. Thank you for the bedtime stories, like this one, that inspired the woman I would become. Once upon a time, long ago, in a kingdom long forgotten to history, well, that's where our story begins. And as many stories do, ours begins with a child. New to this world, swaddled in a thin cloth and left along a remote roadside in the country. Only a basket for his protection, young Wilbur howled and shrieked, their strong lungs sending the sound reverberating across fields and into caves and across canyons and perhaps even mountains. As chance would have it, a figure happened to be riding by this very stretch of road this day. And as the sun began to nestle itself beyond the horizon, a black's horse stopped its clopping hooves beside this basket of fury and fear. The rider dismounted, lowering the hood of their dark wool cloak, pale as ash hands reaching for the basket. A bemused smile crossed ruby-red lips as the figure fished out a handwritten note, and her soft voice read it under her breath. It is with my greatest wish that my Wilbur be looked after. I'm not long for this world. Please be kind to the greatest love my life has ever known. The woman gently lifted the basket from the ground and smiled warmly at the child, her green eyes meeting his deep brown. In that instant, something quite remarkable happened. Anyone with children would consider this to be nothing but pure magic, but the child grew quiet, calmed by the woman's face. She ran a loving finger along his cheek, whispering into the basket, It's all right, little Wilbur. I have you now. Let's get you home and warm. The boy grew, as children are wont to do, His adopted mother, known only to him as Lady Fern, lived in a small but cozy cottage deep in the woods. She spent much of her time reading, weaving, and tending to her modest little farm. She was stern, but kind, and the boy rarely wanted for anything. From a young age, Wilbur showed a remarkable talent with herbs and plants. Lady Fern, recognizing potential when she saw it, happily began educating the young boy in the art of medicinal healing. She started small, of course. Ginger root for an upset tummy, lavender tea for a headache, and a peppermint ointment for a sore throat. 
building and building until one day she knew that an important decision had to be made. Wilbur, darling, you do know how proud I am of you, don't you? Wilbur, now a young man, looked across the table at his adopted mother, a woman who, as he was now realizing, seemed as young and as vibrant as she had in the earliest of his memories. I do, Lady Fern. Why do you ask? I feel it is time for you to set out in this world, to use your abilities to help others. But I need to know you're up for the task. The man paused, staring, trying to read her face, but as always... Lady Fern was indecipherable. In what way, ma'am? She rose from her seat and moved to the chest she kept tucked in the corner of the room. Using the key she stashed in her bodice, she unlocked and opened the lid and returned to the table with two large satchels. These contain my very own blends of healing remedies. This one, she pointed to the white satchel, contains such a potent blend that it will return anyone from the brink of death, no matter their ailment. And this one, she said, pointing to the red satchel, is to be given to allow someone to slip away peacefully in their sleep. For you give this when it is, well, when it's someone's time. Wilbur stared in awe at Lady Fern and the two satchels. How will I know when to administer these? Lady Fern met his eyes, a cold expression in them. Once you take possession of these satchels, you will be gifted the sight. Upon your arrival at a sick person in their bed, you and you alone will see a marker upon them. If the marker is at the head of their bed, you will administer the healing herb. But if the marker is at the foot of their bed, you must administer the herb of eternal sleep. Nodding, Wilbur reached for the satchels, only to have Lady Fern stop his hand. Balance is essential. It must always be kept. You must promise to me, Wilbur, that you will always adhere to the mark. You must always keep the balance. Am I understood? Yes, ma'am. Promise me, Wilbur. I I promise, Mother. And with a nod of approval from Lady Fern, Wilbur took the satchels and placed them on his belt, and the following morning he set off into the world to make his mark and provide help for those in need. It did not take long for the fresh-faced young healer to begin making a name for himself. Wilbur of Fern, a great healer of great power, with the ability to heal anyone, no matter how close they were to death. Just as Lady Fern had said when he arrived at the bedside, a mock would appear, informing him which of the herbs to administer. He was granted free room and board in any inn he wished. Feasts were given in his honor in the holds of lords. Great festivals thrown in his name. Then one morning, as he rose from his bed in the nicest room of the nicest tavern in a land far from the tiny cottage of Lady Fern, A sharp knock came to his door. A missive from the king of these millands. His daughter and only child, the princess Fortitia, was gravely ill, and the king demanded the presence of the best healer in the land to tend to her. The messenger nodded to Wilbur of Fern, explaining that a carriage was waiting below to take him to the king at once. 
So without delay, Wilbur was packed, his herb secured to his belt, and on his way to answer this summons. Wilbur was ushered into the main courtroom. Great silk and velvet tapestries outlining the vast and intense history of these people. A long-running monarchy that had survived for centuries through not only strong military prowess, but kindness. For these were renowned as the kindest monarchs in all the land. Kneeling in reverence to the good king, the entire court went silent, looking on in curiosity. Young man, I am told you have the power to heal anyone, no matter their ailment. Is this correct? I, I can heal almost everyone, your highness, but in some cases I cannot for the circumstances, boy. Fortitia is my only child. Do you understand me? I lost her mother to the plague. If the princess were to die, the kingdom would, would be without an heir. Save my daughter's life, Wilbur of Fern, and I shall grant you her hand in marriage. Wilbur nodded, taking a deep breath. He was ushered to her bedside, where he first laid eyes on the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. His heart pounded in his chest as he felt, for the first time, an undeniable want. He brought his gaze to the head of her bed, only to find that the mark was not there. His veins filling suddenly with ice, he turned to look at the foot of the bed. There was the mark. It was, in fact, Fortitia's time. He lowered his head and sighed heavily. Oh, what to do? For all his fame and ability, he was a man without a home, without a, without a name, without, without a lineage, at the mercy, truly, of others. Securing a marriage to a princess would mean he could enjoy all the comforts of life in a royal palace, a warm bed, never worrying about his next meal. He would go to bed each night in the loving embrace of the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. He found himself latching on to the desire, like vines gripping tight to his heart. He could not walk away from this. His mind made up. Wilbur called the guards in to help him. Together, they turned the bed, forcing the mark to the head, now allowing him to administer the healing herb. Within moments, color began to return to the young princess's face. Her eyelids fluttered open, her eyes warm. And that night, the king threw a banquet in Wilbur's honor. Wilbur of Fern, hero to the kingdom, savior of the princess's bride-to-be. Afterwards, Wilbur stumbled to his bedchamber. Hetty with a belly full of roast meats and mulled wine. He did not expect to find Lady Fern waiting for him. You foolish boy! What were you thinking? Mother, I... You promised me, Wilbur! You gave me your word! It was just one life! What difference does it make? You swore you would uphold the balance, Wilbur! Do not break your vow again! 
He opened his mouth to speak, but found no words would come out. The fury coming from his mother was palpable. He simply nodded, lowering his head in shame. Without another word, Lady Fern left the room, closing the door behind her. The following morning, Wilbur of Fern was awoken by a frantic royal secretary. Sir, you must come at once. The king, he's fallen gravely ill. Herbs in hand, Wilbur went running from his chambers to the king's bedside. My boy, the king's voice was weak. Please, save me. If you do, I will name you successor to the throne. My kingdom will be yours. I swear it. Wilbur drew a deep breath and looked to the king's bed, where once again the mark was at the foot. It was, sadly, the good king's time. A war raged within Wilbur. He had been promised the hand of the princess, but without a title of his own, he would effectively have nothing. Being named heir, successor to the throne, would mean one day he would become king, a leader of man. Think of all the gardens he could fill with this herb. Think of all the people he could save. Once again, Wilbur called the guards to help him turn the bed, placing the mark at the king's head. And then he administered the healing herb. As with Forticia before, the king began to visibly improve almost immediately. Wilbur nodded humbly to the cheering onlookers, excusing himself back to his chambers. Where Lady Fern waited, her face twisted in rage. You promised me, Wilbur, she snarled. In one fluid motion, her hand reached out, snatching him by the wrist. In the blink of an eye, Wilbur found himself in a dark room, surrounded by thousands of lit candles. What is all of this? He whispered, voice trembling. Each of these candles represents a life. Tell me, Wilbur. Which of these candles do you think is yours? The young man gulped, looking around the room. He pointed to a very tall candle, the flame bright and strong. This one. I'm so young. I have so much life in me left to give. No, Wilbur. That candle does not belong to you. He then pointed to another candle. Somewhat smaller, but still modestly sized. Well, perhaps I've taken a few too many risks, and... Therefore, I don't have as long as... No, Wilbur. Try again. He pointed to a third candle. This one having burned just over half. Well, maybe maybe I'm at the halfway mark. Maybe I, I have just as far to go as I've already gone. But perhaps that's the way. No. None of those are your candle. Here. This one. This is your candle, Wilbur. She directed him to a very small candle, burned all the way down almost to the base, the flame flickering and struggling to remain. 
No! No, that cannot be! I am so young! I have so much to live for! Please, please, mother! I beg of you, there must be some way to undo this! A dark shadow flashed across Lady Fern's face as she nodded, reaching into a drawer and pulling out a tall, unlit candlestick. You wish to fix what you have done? Please, anything, I beg of you! She locked eyes on the man before her and drew the the unlit candle toward the flickering flame. Trust once broken is trust forever lost. Wilbur began shrieking. No, no, please! Balance is essential. It must always be kept. And like your promise to me, balance has been broken, Wilbur. There is but one way to fix this. As Wilbur shrieked, she closed her eyes, bringing the bottom of the unlit candle down on the struggling flame, extinguishing it forever. The following story is narrated by the GM, Brendan, uh, and is a story about Kit and Johan. I'll do my best impression of them, but unfortunately, uh, it probably won't come close to half of what their characters can actually do. Without further ado, here is the Rogan Mume versus the Chupacabra. It was a dark and stormy night, and Johan and Kit had taken first watch as the rest of the Fellowship slept around the dim campfire. Johan rose from tending the fire with a yawn. Don't snooze. We got first watch. Kit hissed, shaking their tiny fist at him. Johan chuckled as he resumed his seat on the log. I won't abandon my post, he said. I know something that will keep us both awake. Kit leaned in close, the fire illuminating their face. Yeah? Have you ever heard of the Rogan Mume? he asked, leaning close to the fire and steepling his fingers. As Kit shook their head, Johan cleared his throat and began his tale. My cousin's friend's brother, Fritz, was also a member of the Phoenix Guard, back in my home country. He was traveling the countryside when he came across a vast cornfield outside of a village. From the top of the hill, Fritz was able to see the land below him. In the cornfields, there were children picking cornflowers. What's a cornflower? Kit interrupted. It's a flower that grows in cornfields, Kit. It's bright blue and grows like a weed. Don't interrupt, Johan said before holding his finger up in a shushing motion. Kit frowned, but Johan ignored them and continued with his tale. So there is Fritz, at the top of the hill, seeing this group of children picking cornflowers inside of the cornfield. From the other side of the cornfield, he sees a great beast charging towards the children, the fierce and cruel Rogan Mume. Fritz knew the children would be tortured and killed if the foul creature got her iron hands on them. Iron hands? Kid asked, cocking their head in confusion. Robo hands? No, no, not automaton hands, 
The Rogan Mume's fingers are tipped in sharp iron points, excellent for stabbing. Johan pinched his fingers together and jabbed over the open fire at Kit. Now shush and let me finish. Kit shrugged. Stop giving me stuff to ask about. They grumbled, poorly hiding their interest. The great creature was charging the children. Her body, except for her iron-tipped fingers, was stark white from head to toe. Her hair was a long, stringy rat's nest. She wore clothes similar to what the women in the village wore, except her dress was tattered, filthy, and matted in gore. Her needle-like teeth were sharper than the sharpest knife, and Fritz knew, unless he acted quickly, she would churn those children into paste in her iron-butter churn. He darted down the hill, yelling to the children to warn them of the incoming danger, and for them to get behind him. He got there just in the nick of time. As he interposed himself between the children and the cruel Rogan Mume, the Rogan Mume snarled at him from the distance atop the hill. You see, Fritz had not realized how large this beast was. Now standing in front of him, she easily towered nearly ten feet tall. Those children are mine, the Rogan Mumi growled at Fritz. I will have them for my iron butter churn, and then I will devour what remains of them. Johan jumped up from the log, unsheathed his sword, and took a defensive stance. You'll never get these children, you wretch, for they are under the protection of the Phoenix Guard. The creature did not like this, you see. What'd she do? Kit stared up at Johan, eyes wide like dinner plates. Johan let out a hearty chuckle. The Rogan Mume swiped furiously at Fritz. Her iron-tipped fingers clanged against Fritz's Kriegmesser. She pressed down upon his sword, getting closer and closer with each passing second, until Fritz could feel her hot metallic breath bearing down on his face. He could hear the children behind him, whimpering and begging to be saved. With a swift motion, he managed to disengage from the Rogan Mume, yet she still loomed over him, bigger and stronger and more cruel than he could imagine. I'll put you in my iron butter churn, pesky phoenix god, Johan put on his best old crone voice. In rage, she pulled out her birch switch and swung it at Fritz, trying to flay the skin off his very bones. But Fritz was swift and clever, able to parry and cut the birch switch in half with his Kriegsmesser. The creature let out a furious growl and threw down the remnants of her birch switch. In a blur of motion, she lunges at Fritz, snarling and clawing. She tries to cut Fritz down. She screams like a rabid animal. In a flash, Fritz relied on years of Phoenix Guard training. He stepped to the side and with a single cut of his Kriegsmesser, beheading the Rogan Mume. The children were saved that day from the Rogan Mume that had plagued the village and devoured many children. Fritz became a hero of that village, the slayer of the Rogan Mume. To commemorate the freedom the village now had and to honor the hero who had freed them from the iron grasp of the Rogan Mume, they built a solid gold statue in the town square. Johann sheathed his sword and stood proudly in front of the fire. And what do you think of that? Hmm. Kit tapped their chin thoughtfully and then after a moment shook their head. 
Not very scary. Hero wins. Too easy. You want scary? Nothing scary like a bootstrap story. This story is real. Real, real. Really happened. And I know it's real because it happened to me. You think my story didn't actually happen? Johan scoffed. Nope, Kit said confidently. Rogan mummy can't make iron butter with an iron butter churn. Iron butter isn't a thing. Can't be. Butter comes from cows, not iron. Kit gestured for Johan to sit back down, which he did with an undignified grumble. The orc cleared their throat and began. It was a peaceful night, years ago, back in Goblin Gulch. Real quiet. I was asleep in the sheriff's office when there was a shriek. An animalistic, blood-curdling shriek. I sat up in bed, knowing that something was... afoot. And then the good folks of Goblin Gulch would be needing a sheriff. And then, as I was getting my pants on, someone burst through my front door. And guess what, Johan? They did, in fact, need a sheriff's help. Because there was something scarier than a Rogan mummy. Rogan Mume. Kit. Johan sighed. Something scarier. A chupacabra. This goat sucker was devouring up all this nice big orc's goats. So I grabbed my lantern and run with them back to their farm. And Johan, let me tell you, there was goat husks everywhere. Drained dry by this vampiric varmint. It had tossed them all over the place. In ditches, on fences, one on the roof. Kit leaned forward and then whispered, And there wasn't a drop of blood to be found. This farmer is real distressed. What with having all their goats drained dry, you'd be distressed too, Johan, if all your goats were... Kit made a wet, slurping noise. I'm trying to console this farmer when I see a shadow dart into the barn. And there's only one thing for a sheriff to do. Give chase. But the barn is real dark and I can't see anything. It's all shadows. How am I supposed to find a shadow needle in a shadow haystack? Kit paused and looked at Johan expectantly. I suppose that is a predicament, he nodded. It was. Too many shadows. And then, out of nowhere, a spiny scaly figure jumps out of the darkness and leaps over me, stealing my sheriff's hat, and runs out of the barn back out into the night. So I chase it again because that some bitch stole my hat. It's headed towards y'all, I shout as I run back towards the farm. Now we're chasing this chupacabra around the farm for a few minutes until some of the farmhands pin it into a goat pen with pitchforks. Folks have got their lanterns raised, revealing the true hideous form of this chupacabra. You ever seen a chupacabra, Johan? I have not. Gnarled things, like dogs, but ugly, scaly all over, with big pointy spines going down their backs. It's a little taller than me, with its pointy ears raised up, twitching like crazy as it's listening to the whole ruckus. And it's fangs, Johan. You think your Rogan mummy had fangs? These fangs could rip a big orc's arm off in a single bite, except it has two big canines for sucking blood. And worst of all, you know what was worst of all? Johan shook his head. It was wearing my hat. Like it was some kind of chupacabra sheriff, as if chupacabras have sheriffs. Kit scoffed. I'm about to open up with my junk can and really give that hat stealer a what for when it lets out another one of those blood-curdling, piercing shrieks and dives into a jackalope hole. Now I'll let you know because we're friends, Johan, I start to panic a little bit. That some bitch has my hat, and I can't let no chupacabra run around with an orca sheriff's hat. Taint right. Johan nodded. Kit didn't pause long enough to consider that Johan may or may not have been humoring them. 
So me and a few other small orcs follow it down in the jackalope warrens, but we lose it. It's too fast. We can hear its dirty little claws skittering around in the dirt, but we can't find it. All we find are some scared jackalopes. See, the chupacabras don't eat jackalopes. They only eat goats. That's the chupacabra rule. And into the darkness it goes. Forever. With my hat. Some orcs still say that they'd see a chupacabra with a sheriff's hat lurking around Goblin Gulch. Somewhere out there is... Kit paused for a moment, widening their eyes and throwing their arms up in the air. A chupacabra sheriff! Is that all that happened with this chupa-what's-it kit? Surely there must be more details about your encounter with the beast, Johan protested. Kit shook their head. Not the important part. That's not the important part? What do you mean? Johan gasped. How would you feel, Johan, if you had your hat stolen forever by a Rogan mummy? Kit whispered. A shudder ran down Johan's spine. A world where all of us have magic, and everyone's unique. The steel's hunger no longer lingers. When Upperton's made us complete. That was the little poem Tommy's mother told him decades ago when he was bright-eyed and asking questions. They lived in New Vespia, but in this place, the residents had a different name for the city. The Hungry Steel. Here, the days are long from sunrise till sunset. Everyone is expected to produce in some capacity. The towers rise as ramps and ladders spiral in and around one another, while glass eyes look outwards towards the asphalt ground or the next patch of green for the hungry steel to consume. Tommy once spoke of a dream he had to his friends at school during regulated mealtime. Ten minutes they got of socialization and free talk. While they shoveled their daily ration of Upperton Uppers and green foods into their body to keep them awake, productive, and fed. The dream was unimportant. Just the fact that he had it and talked about it was enough to get him written up. He brought the note home after traversing the ladders and windswept balconies that had no railings, and which had eaten no less than two of his friends already this semester. The steel must be fed, his parents said. His parents were not so much upset as disappointed in their own exhaustion. It's fine, Tommy, his parents say, doing their best to smile. Upperton promised that the magic he captures outside the city walls will soon begin to trickle down to the rest of us, and then your dreams can come true. This line they fed their children for countless years, and will continue to, for more countless years. Any day now, the manna will come trickling down from the heavens, and the haves to the have-nots. But Ma, I want to make things, not just press the button that makes things. I want to write and draw they stare in shock and shake their heads. Not now, son. We must work to raise up the hungry steel. 
for if it should fall, there'd be nowhere left to hide. Do you want us to be running from brutes like orcs and their like? Tommy had been told about orcs before. Horrible little creatures that stole as many things as they could and hid in trench coats to lure little boys and girls away from the places in the machine. With teeth like cactus needles and hearts as black as their soulless eyes. Upperton made sure no one liked orcs. Tommy liked orcs, though. Tommy thought they were quite fun-sounding. People who partied and made art all day long? It sounded amazing. Years passed, and more notes were sent home until Tom was in his teenage years. He had a meeting one day, nearer his graduation, with his robo-teacher. The electronic drone of a voice modulator came through the echoing tin of the bot. Thomas, we caught you writing more unsanctioned poetry. You know, with that many creativity marks against you, you'll never be able to get a spot on the board and elevate your family up to the next level of the skyscraper. I know, Teach, but sometimes you have to express yourself, you know? Thomas, dream minds make for a dangerous workplace. What if you were rhyming words together in your head and your sister had lost another finger or your little brother his other leg? Tom gripped at his appendages in a mocked pain of seeing what the hungry steel had done to his family already. Ever since his father had taken one step too many on a ladder and fallen backwards into the asphalt below, he saw the poem before him and remembered it, word for word. He watched his brothers and sisters toil, never to view the sun. There's no time for jolly, they said. There is no time for fun. And all of those around him insist that he oblige, for if the hungry steel should fall, there'd be nowhere to hide. Tom took the poem and ripped it up in front of the teaching bot's optics to show that he would throw away his dreams for his family. Something broke in Tom that day, something more precious than a finger or an eye. He knew that if he toiled long and hard, the magic from Uppertons must bless him and his children. Just as his parents believed, just as theirs before him. Years later, Thomas was assigned a wife, and they reproduced as workers must need do to feed the hungry steel. He grew older, weathered by his time in the foundries, and one day his youngest, with bright eyes like his own so long ago, came home with a note. He sighed and gave the same speech his own parents gave him. A world where all of us have magic and everyone's unique. The death of one is tragic, but we're so close to the peak. So give up your child's fingers. What's wrong with feeding it their feet? The steel's hunger no longer lingers. When Uppertons made us complete.
Thank you all so much for taking the time to enjoy our show. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not give us a like, subscribe to the channel on your podcast app of choice, leave a comment, or even a review. It may be a small thing to you, but it helps us in the continued fight against the algorithm. You can follow us on Twitter at A Pair of Dice Lost, on Facebook at A Pair of Dice Lost Podcasting, and hey, if you like the old fashioned email, why not send a question into, you guessed it, A Pair of Dice Lost at gmail.com. Our theme song for this campaign is Behind the Sword by Alexander Nakarada, copyright 2017, under a Creative Commons license. And for making it this far, I think you and me just had a moment. So let's form a bond so we can both roll with hope. <laughs>